Hello, and welcome to episode 76 of Killer Hangover. My name is Beth. And I'm Bettina. And this week we have true crime and paranormal stories for the state of Kentucky. Kentucky. It's been a while since we've been here. A little while. Yep. Yeah. I am very excited to tell the true crime this week. And mom has the paranormal and the beverage and is drinking alone. Again. Boo hoo. <laughs> yeah, I can't wait till this baby comes. Okay. So I can drink <laughs> with you? That's all you care about? <laughs> no. I can't wait to hold the little guy. Okay, so what comes to mind when you think of Kentucky? The Kentucky Derby. Yes. And what do people drink at the Kentucky Derby? I've never been. I don't know. Well, I know, but it's, I grow part of it in my garden. Mint. Julep. Yes. That is the Kentucky drink. But of course, (laughs) I can't do that, can I? Oh, here we go. (laughs) So I made the Diane Crump Blackberry Mint Julep. Why? Yes, why? Because. (laughs) Because you wanted to. Diane Crump is an American jockey and horse trainer who was the first woman to ride in the Kentucky Derby. And this drink, she actually made this drink. She created this yeah, drink? She created this drink. So Very cool. I thought I would take a step further from the mint julep and do this one. Okay. I like that. This has two ounces of Kentucky straight bourbon, <laughs> one bar spoon. I'm not sure what that is. <laughs> so I had a regular spoon of well, black. it's not an ice cream spoon or a teaspoon. I think it's a little... It's smaller, like one of those little, little small the long handle. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't have one of those. Of uh, one bar spoon of blackberry preserves. So oh, it's like like a jelly. Jelly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A bar spoon of simple syrup, which I didn't have, <laughs> so <laughs> I used powder sugar because that's what another recipe called for, and so I thought mm, I'll substitute. That's interesting. Mint bitters also didn't have that. <laughs> So I took mint from my garden <laughs> and I muddled it. So this is the patina mint julep. <laughs> this is the patina Diane Crump <laughs> blackberry mint julep. Cheers, y'all. But it's, yeah, I was really surprised when I was looking up mint julep because I'd never had one. Dude, it is straight alcohol. Did you just so, call me dude? Dudette. <laughs> It is straight. I'll, that's all that's in it is bourbon. Well, bourbon, and sugar, bourbon, <laughs> sounds like you mint, just added a bunch of sugar, a little bit of sugar, and crushed ice. That's it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So I added a little bit more sugar with the jelly, jam, whatever. Preserves. So, anyway, here it goes. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers, mom. How was your concoction you created? It's not bad. It's pretty smooth. I got a mixture of the jam and the mint. If you don't like mint, you probably shouldn't do this one. <laughs> I like mint in my gum. Oh, I like mint chocolate chip ice cream. It's it's actually pretty good. Oh, there you go. <laughs> Just be sipping on this and clinking my eyes while you tell your story. Try it, listeners. Try the real version or mom's made up version. No, it's not made up. It's really a version. I'm... Um, 
Of course, I'll post the link on our Social website. media <laughs> website, yes. Yep. But since she's drinking alone, give it a shot. Try it out and let us know what you guys think. Yeah. Okay. I have a story for you. Now, this whole story takes place over a 30-year span and includes a lot of people, a lot of different families, just a lot of people. So I'm going to do my best to share the story as non-confusing as possible. <laughs> okay. You still with me? <laughs> yeah. So stop me if you have any questions. I will. But I think I did a pretty good job at writing this up. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> No, I'm scared to ask any questions. <laughs> My point exactly. <laughs> okay, so the story begins in 1968 in Georgetown, Kentucky, along Eagle Creek. Wilbur Riddle was walking the area near the creek, which runs alongside an interstate. He was looking for insulators left behind from workers working on the phone lines. These are those little glass-like things on oh, telephone sure. poles yeah. that... Yeah. They prevent electricity from jumping from the wires up there. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. I had to look it up. And apparently he collected these and painted them and sold them. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of flea markets. Yeah. Wow. I had no idea. Yeah. I'm not. Ex I wasn't I, sure at all. I'm older than you. <laughs> so, well, thank you for clarifying that I described that well. Thank you. You did. See, I'm doing very good so far. I don't have any questions. So that's nice and lovely, but... We are telling a true crime story. We so are. Yeah. He's out in the woods along the creek. Like all of our lovely stories in these kinds <laughs> of instances, he discovered he comes across this large canvas bag in the woods wrapped up in some kind of a wire. He kind of kicks at it and it rolls down the banks and he realizes he needs to call somebody right away. He runs to, I believe, a gas station, but he gets a hold of the local sheriff, Bobby Vance, to check this canvas bag out. And yes, some of you may be getting distracted by this name, Bob Vance. Vance Refrigeration is what you're thinking from the <laughs> office. <laughs> I knew that name sounded familiar. I know. When I was doing my research, <laughs> I was like... Bob Vance, Vance Refrigeration. No. I was just like, Very have nice. I heard this story before? Does <laughs> <laughs> that name sound really familiar? So before you go racking your brains, I just wanted to help you out. This is Bobby Vance, the sheriff of Georgetown, Kentucky. So Vance and two deputies arrive fairly quickly and discover it, as they suspected, is a body in a canvas bag. Now, this is 1968. And Georgetown, Kentucky, Scotts County, had not had much, if any, experience with this kind of thing at all. From the podcast Unsolved Murders, they stated that the only murder that Vance had dealt with was an angry wife who shot her husband in bed. Now, he is dealing with a deceased Jane Doe mm. on the side of a creek near the interstate. Oh, jeez. They take the body in and find that it is a female. From the initial look over, they find that the victim had short reddish brown hair, no piercings, no scars or tattoos, no jewelry. She Nothing was, to identify her. She was nude. Her body had turned black and had bloated from decomp and her face was very decayed. There was no nose because she was so decayed and she was actually missing an eye. The way she was... Even though she was wrapped in canvas? Right. She was probably out there for a long time and I'll get there. Okay. The way she was almost stuffed in the bag, she looked to be almost sitting, her hands frozen in place, clasped 
and her fingernails looked like they had been ripped off. Oh, no. Almost like she had tried to claw her way out of the bag. The only other thing in the bag with the girl was a towel. Some resources said the towel was on her head and others said it was around her shoulders. They searched the area the body was found for any clues, but found nothing. It was kind of left to assume that she was possibly just tossed out, maybe at night, from the interstate up above the creek. And had rolled down to where she was? Because mm-hmm. was the guy walking on a trail by the river, or was he just going through the woods when he, he was... He was just going through the woods. No trail. Mm-mm. Okay. Her body was sent to Lexington, Kentucky for the autopsy. It was determined loosely because of the decomp of her body that the victim was five feet one and a half inches tall 110 to 115 pounds age was approximately 16 to 19 years old Mm. but there was no wounds no broken bones the cause of death was ruled undetermined the time of death was just as curious there was larva under the skin, which I guess normally can help with the time frame sure. of death mm-hmm. with flies and everything. Mm-hmm. But it didn't line up with the fact that there was no blood in her blood vessels because she was in the canvas bag. It probably interfered with how her body would normally decompose out oh, yeah. in the open. Yeah, sure. But they had to put a timestamp on her death and they did between two to three weeks prior. That's what they claimed she had died two to three weeks prior to them okay i was thinking longer okay okay they were able to get a fingerprint from her oh she was very dehydrated so i guess they kind of like rehydrated a finger which is just so crazy how they do that that's so cool but honestly that doesn't matter oh (laughs) i mean because unless she's a criminal yeah her fingerprints wouldn't be on file especially 16 to 19 exactly and then like you said it's 1968 they don't have a system on the computer to to cross-reference these fingerprints Mm. it was all done manually like in files on paper all over the country in different filing cabinets it's not like you can cross-reference anywhere georgetown is a small town and the community started to talk and try to help figure out who this jane doe could possibly be Lots of rumor and things started to circulate, so the police believed it best to hold a press conference to kind of set it straight. Good. This is what we found. Good. And kind of get the truth out there. It was at this time the media gave the girl a name, Tent Girl, because she was found in a canvas, canvas bag. Mm-hmm. Wanting more answers, Sheriff Vance had another coroner called in to do a second autopsy, this time checking for any trace of maybe poison and a second opinion on the cause of death. May I say that this sheriff is pretty on the ball? I would think so. A second autopsy would be... Yeah. I always want a second opinion. Plus the fact that he's going out and getting help instead Mm -hmm. of trying to do this on his own. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. Although this autopsy did not show poison, it did show a discoloration in the victim's skull, leaving them to believe that she had been hit unconscious by a blow to the head and then put in the bag. Meaning as terrible as it is to believe that she was alive. Oh, no. When placed in this canvas bag. Mm. So as you all suspected, with the nails being found the way they were, she probably had tried to escape the confines of the bag. Oh, God. Oh, God. The police received no tips, no leads, even after their press conference. So they reached out to a police officer over in Covington. And this police officer... He actually did sketches on the side. So that wasn't even really his job, but he did it on the side. And so they asked if he would make a sketch based on the autopsy photos. 
Now remember, this poor girl was very decomposed. She didn't even have a nose. But after a week of looking over the images, he obliged and made a pencil sketch of what he believed the girl to look like. The image was published statewide, but unfortunately, there were no real striking features on the sketch of the girl. There was nothing really... I mean, he probably couldn't determine even what her color eyes were, could he? It's just a pencil sketch. Oh, that's true. Okay. She looked like an average teenage girl. The one thing that may set her apart was the gap in her two front teeth. But no real defining characteristics besides that. Oh my gosh, that's so sad. This kid had to belong to somebody. I know. And again, think about the time. It's not like you can go on missing persons on the computer. Like she could be from anywhere. Exactly. There were some leads that came in after the sketch was released, but none that led anywhere. Finally, one month later, there seems to be a break in the case. The Georgetown Sheriff's Office receives a call from Maryland. A woman who, after seeing the sketch, was certain that this was her 15-year-old missing daughter, Doris Dittmar. The 15-year-old had last been seen with some, quote, hippies and undesirables, unquote. She sent in some hair samples. Remember, Mm -hmm. they don't have DNA analysis yet. Oh, shoot. That's right. So they're literally just comparing looking at strands of hair from the victim and this Mm -hmm, girl mm -hmm. and they matched. Oh, as police work on finalizing and closing tent girls case, a call comes in 15 year old Doris had only just run away and was alive and well living in Pennsylvania with her boyfriend. (sighs) Before this fact was made known, police were taking the image of Doris as well as the sketch of tent girl and were asking around if anyone had seen this girl. I mean, even if they thought it was Doris, they still wanted to solve the whodunit portion. Exactly. A truck driver came forward claiming that the sketch looked familiar, that he had seen her and a young man off Interstate 25 hitchhiking. It had been raining, and he remembered the couple, because their clothing was light weather clothing, it wasn't proper Mm -hmm. for the weather. Okay, so a possible sighting of the girl on the highway near where the body was found, maybe a real break. Soon, a phone call comes into the station from another driver, and this story matched up with the other truck driver's story, except this driver had picked the couple up and had given them a ride. Oh. On April 14th, this driver picked up the couple. He explained the guy as having longish hippie hair, and the girl was in a short dress and a light sweater. They both had camping packs. And they were arguing, fighting, actually, so much so that the driver pulled over and kicked them out of his truck. Oh, my gosh. Last he saw them, they were headed north towards Georgetown, right near where the body had been found. Holy smokes. It is now midsummer. And other than the fact that the girl had been seen with a guy, possibly a hippie, they had nothing. No more leads. They were still awaiting results from D.C. where the FBI lab had taken in that towel, the one found on her body. Right. They had taken the towel, the canvas bag, and the cord that had been wrapped around the bag in for forensic a forensic report. When results came in, it gave more questions than answers. The canvas bag and cord were very popular items at the time, mm-hmm. too popular for anyone to narrow down where they originated. And that towel wasn't actually a towel but a bird's eye diaper. What? So was Tent Girl a mom? What? Boy, I wasn't expecting that. 
So remember all of this case is being processed on paper, put in files in the police station in Georgetown, Kentucky, a small town. It's not on a computer system. Other offices can't just watch for updates and cross-reference for matches so easily. So it's amazing that the Scott County Police Station in Georgetown receives a phone call from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. They had a Jane Doe cold case as well. And she was found in a canvas bag the month before Tent Girl was. What? She was of similar weight and height. A sweater was found wrapped around her head, same as the baby diaper on Tent Girl. She was dumped off a main road near a body of water, and her skull had the same discoloration. No way. Were they dealing with the same killer? Yeah. Now, this is before serial killer is even a thing. It's hard to imagine that now (laughs) because we've learned and heard about so many serial killers or spree Mm -hmm. killers. But it's this is before Mindhunter. This is 1968. Right. The two counties work together in trying to solve both of these cases, but all gets quiet. In the late fall of 68, the same sketch artist is asked to make another sketch. They release it again. They get some more leads, but Mm. then it kind of just trickles off. The police make one more big effort to get somewhere in the case in May of 1969. They actually run an article on the case in the Master Detective magazine, which is basically a true crime podcast before they had podcasts. It was a magazine with unsolved cases and such where amateur detectives could work on cases and maybe try to help. Cool. I want a subscription. <laughs> but yet again, Nothing. they reach a wall. Eventually in 1971, it was decided to bury Tent Girl. She was buried in the Georgetown Cemetery in the back, her headstone labeled number 90. Mm. Tent Girl's story became a spooky campfire tale, a Halloween legend. And in 1987, it was told as such, but became quite the obsession to one listener. Lori Ann Riddle was new to Livingston, Tennessee. It was Halloween night, and she and some new friends she had made in high school sat around sharing spooky stories. Hers was different than all the rest in the fact that hers was a real tale. She shared the story of how her father, Wilbur Riddle, had discovered the decomposed tent girl. Oh. Now, I can't tell you if the obsession came from the fact that 17-year-old Todd had quite the crush on Lorianne, or if her storytelling really did captivate him, but he became obsessed with the story. His obsession with the story and Lori continued. (laughs) The two graduated from high school and eventually got married. Oh, goodness. After they were married, the couple took a trip out to where Lori's family was in Georgetown, Kentucky. There, Todd expressed his obsession of Tent Girl to his new wife. That sounds odd, but... (laughs) But it's a meaningful obsession, and I'll explain that. When Todd was young, his two younger siblings had died. I'm not exactly sure how, but they died at very young ages. Mm. Every Sunday since their deaths, the family would attend church and then go to the cemetery to say hello to the two deceased children. The tent girl story struck a chord with him in the fact that her burial and her death had no love surrounding it. Right. There was no one to... Like, death was, yes, it was sad, but there was love in it, Mm -hmm. and she Mm -hmm. didn't get that. And her family was probably still out there mourning with no closure, and that really, really bothered him. When they arrived to Lori's family home, Lori's father, Wilbur, took Todd out 
to see Tent Girl's grave. At this point in time, I'm not exactly sure who paid for it or what, but she had a new headstone. Oh. One that read, Tent Girl, found May 17th, 1968, on U.S. Highway 25 North. Died about April 26th to May 3rd, 1968. Age, about 16 to 19 years. Height, 5 feet 1 inch. Weight, 110 to 115 pounds. Reddish brown hair, unidentified. And then on the top, with there's one of the sketches etched in the top of the headstone. Holy smoke, somebody spent some bucks <laughs> on this. But it reads like a police report to yeah, Todd. That's exactly what this, it reads like. This upset him even more. Because it's just disheartening to him. Todd's obsession grew. It grows and it grows and it grows. How's my storytelling? (laughs) It is now 1995. Todd is 24 years old, working at an auto parts manufacturing plant. He and his wife and two-year-old son live in Livingston, Tennessee, near his family. He works long hours, making little pay. And in any free time he has, he is on the hunt to find the answers for Tent Girl. Oh, Todd. He is driving to library after library. Oh, my goodness. Searching newspapers, driving back and forth from Livingston to Georgetown, making Xerox copies. And eventually, over time, he goes bankrupt. His obsession of the case leads Lori to move out with her son, leaving the ever-obsessed Todd on his own. Oh, no. Todd is devastated and makes a big change in his life to prioritize his family. He works hard at his job and eventually gets promoted. He buys a larger, nicer trailer. He saves his money and he stops his research into Tent Girl's case. Eventually, Lori and their young son move back in with Todd and they work to make it work. Good. They're doing well. But after some time, that filing cabinet that Todd had locked away with all of Tent Girl's notes and newspaper articles was beckoning. Starts calling his name. Yep. Todd. Todd. I'm still here. Storytelling. (laughs) No, but really, the guy's obsession is too much for him to bear. And after discussing it with his wife, she agrees and he dives back in. But this time... It's under circumstances that it cannot interfere with family life. It cannot interfere with his job because the moment it does, she's out. But he's got the time on his hands because it's 1997 and there's a new thing that's out there that makes this investigating much, much easier. The Internet. So late at night, after he has finished his job, after he has spent time with his family, late at night when no one would call the house, he uses his dial-up Internet (laughs) and gets on the web. Looking for answers on Tent Girl. Jeez. He can email government officials easier on the internet. He can get in touch with media outlets and search old articles easier. Ten years into his search, November 1997, he creates a website, tentgirl.com. To no avail, no one responds to his requests to more answers and more tips. He works with media outlets in getting the story out there again. Emails and makes bulletin posts scans missing person sites man and that's just what he's doing late at night in january 1998 on a cold snowy evening he is scanning the missing persons bulletin on a site run by dallas pis crane and hibbs the listing is from a rosemary westbrook she's looking for her older sister quote my sister barbara 
has been missing from our family since the latter part of 1967. Oh. She has brown hair, brown eyes, is 5'2", and was last seen in the Lexington, Kentucky area. Any information, please contact me at, unquote. Right. After days of sitting on this post, it's just eating at Todd. Todd picks up the phone and makes a call to Rosemary Hackman Westbrook. Now, here's where the story jumps to Rosemary's story. Okay. It's a sad one. She shares this with Todd. When Rosemary was young, she grew up with three sisters and a little brother. One day, her little brother and her father traveled to their home in Ohio to check on things when there was a flood and the two perished. Hmm. Rosemary's mother absolutely just lost it. She was devastated by their loss and had a very hard time going on and actually sent Rosemary as an infant to go live with her in-laws in St. Louis. The family saw one another regularly, so it's not like she just cut Rosemary out, but Rosemary was eventually adopted by her aunt and uncle and raised as their own. But like I said, Rosemary remained very close with her family and very close to her older sister, Barbara, or as the family called her, Bobby Ann. It was 1963, and a carnival came to town, and Bobby Ann was introduced to Earl Taylor, a carny. Earl had a young daughter, Bonnie, whose mother had run out on them. He had gone to social services to request a babysitter for his young daughter while in town working on the carnival. The social services worker, being Bobby and Rosemary's mother, recommended that Bobby be the young girl's I caretaker. See. Okay. So Bobby Ann is now babysitting Bonnie, yes. who is Earl's daughter. Gotcha. And before you know it, Earl Taylor and Bobby Ann head to the courthouse and get married. Wow. Okay. Bobby Ann was over the moon in love and happy, so her family was nothing but supportive of the 19-year-old's marriage. Days after the marriage, the couple up and left with the carnival, traveling from place to place. Bobby Ann kept in touch with her family the best you could at the time, calling when she could and sending letters. There's something about a letter, you know? Like, <laughs> I just, I really miss sending letters. Does anybody out there want to be my pen pal? <laughs> Anyway, in 1964, she calls with news that she had had a baby boy, Earl Jr. They called him Sonny. A year after that, she gave word that she had a baby girl. Oh, my gosh. Dorothy Michelle. They called her Shelly. She sent letters, sent photos. The last the family heard from her, her letters were coming from Florida, where the family seemed to have settled. In 1968, when Rosemary was 11 years old, the letters and phone calls from her sister stopped. Rosemary had loved the calls from her older sister, hearing about her nieces and nephew, hearing all about the carnival life, but nothing for months. That's when the family decided to call and file a missing persons in Florida, the last place they knew the family had lived. They couldn't get in touch with Earl. They didn't know how. They couldn't get in touch with the children. They were much too young. Mm -hmm. It's just like they all vanished. Years go by and Mm -hmm. nothing. It's now in the 70s, and Rosemary and her adopted mother and father moved to Arkansas for a job with the railroad. There, Rosemary grows up, goes to high school, she gets married, she settles her roots. Never a day goes by that she's not on the lookout for her sister. If there was ever a fair or a carnival nearby, she would take her children, hoping to spot her sister or Earl or her nephew and nieces. Then, in 1989... Rosemary receives a call from another sister. Bobby Ann's daughter, Shelly, had tracked down the family. Oh. She and her half-sister, Bonnie, were in their 20s now and wanted answers about their mother. 
Rosemary and her family were so happy to hear from the girls, and answers about the missing Bobby Ann started to surface. In late 1967, the children were left in Ohio on Earl's parents' doorstep. Oh, jeez. Earl's story was that Bobby Ann had run off with another man. Mm-mm. Sound familiar? Mm-mm. Yep. That's what he said about his first wife. The three children were separated to three different households and oh. adopted. Earl rarely visited any of his children. Unfortunately, in 1984, when Sonny was 19 years old, he was hit and killed by a drunk driver while riding his bike. At the funeral, feeling the loss of her brother, Shelley wanted the comfort of family, meaning she wanted answers about her mother. The obsession of who her mother was and where she went continued. And while suffering from cancer on his deathbed, Shelley addressed these questions to her basically absent father. Mm -hmm. She gets a name and Collinsville, Illinois. But then he just shells up. He's done talking about it. He doesn't want to talk about her. And in 1987, he dies. Okay, so I know I went through this quickly, but to sum it up, Shelly is now in her 20s. She has lost her brother and her father and wants to find where she comes from, who she is, who is her mother. And she wants to understand why her mother left. And she now has the name Barbara Hackman in Collinsville, Illinois. So she hits the road. She's directed to a house in Collinsville, knocks on the door, and is greeted by her grandmother with open arms. Her grandmother, as well as her aunts, are beyond happy to see her, to hug her, to meet her, and to finally know her. She brings her older half-sister into the mix as well, Mm -hmm. Bonnie, Bonnie, who is just as thrilled to be reconnected with family. And they all put their heads together to figure out what happened to Bobby Ann. Now, Shelley was very young when Bobby Ann was last seen, but Bonnie had been seven. The last time she had seen her bubbly, beautiful stepmom was in December of 1967 in Lexington, Kentucky, the night before she had been kept awake by her parents arguing. But that morning, Bobby Ann was happy and got the children dressed and took Bonnie to school just as she regularly did. When Bonnie arrived home from school, she arrived home to only her father. And he was packing up all of their things, saying that Bobby Ann had left with another man. Then the children were left on his parents' doorstep. Jeez. So now, hearing this story, Rosemary decides to call the Lexington police to report a missing persons report. But here's the thing. The call was made on Halloween night in 1995. Mm. There is no record of Rosemary making this report. It's assumed that the officer who took the call believed that it was a joke. missing person claim was almost 30 years prior on a Halloween night, mm-hmm. it's all a hoax. So they never took record of this call. Oh, geez. And they didn't know it on the other end. That no. They weren't. Rosemary doesn't know this, of course. But now that she has her nieces in her life again, she is now determined to figure out what happened to her sister even more. So she makes a post on the Dallas P.I. Crane and Hibbs website. Todd listens to this story intently, taking notes becomes more and more sure there is a connection. The two trade information back and forth. It's just too similar. Down to the fact that a gap in the front teeth is a hereditary thing in the Hackman's family. Then Rosemary faxed a photo of Bobby Ann to Todd and he became even more convinced that he had found Tent Girl's identity. The two gathered all of their evidence and Todd submitted it to the Scott County Sheriff Bobby Hammonds, and then they waited. 
Todd had been researching this case for the last 11 years. Mm-hmm. Rosemary for the last almost 30 years Jeez. trying to figure out where her sister was. So what's more waiting, right? Mm. Eventually in February 1998, the coroner, after viewing the autopsy notes and photos and comparing all things that Todd gave them, agreed that Tent Girl must be exhumed. Now it's February in the dead of winter. The ground was too frozen, so more waiting. Eventually, at the end of March, the body is exhumed, sent to a medical examiner and anthropologist in Frankfort, Kentucky. And then there's more waiting for results. Mm -hmm. In the end of April, the results are in. It is confirmed that Tent Girl is Barbara Hackman Taylor. Oh, my gosh. And then the other girl might have been his first wife. She was found a month, though. Oh, Mm. that's right. I'm sorry. You're okay. I jumped there, too. It's okay. The family and Todd finally have their answers. That spring, the family holds an official service. Because the Georgetown community had basically made Tent Girl or Barbara their own, they decided to keep her buried there. Mm-hmm. And the same headstone with the height and the weight and the sketch and everything, they kept that there too. But they added a new headstone, like a smaller one at the bottom, that says Bobby, Barbara, and Hackman. Her birth is also listed there, and it also states a loving mother, grandmother, and sister. Notice it wasn't her married name that was listed on the headstone. After 30 years, the family was able to say their goodbyes, but the case is still open. It's highly suspected that Earl Taylor is the killer. The canvas was something used by carnivals, Mm -hmm. and a little tidbit that Bonnie remembers from the day her father drove her and her siblings to be dropped off to their new homes her stepmom's purse had sat on the front seat oh even after she had been told that she had left to be with another man Mm -hmm. had she really left to be with another man and her new lover is the one that threw her off the interstate and killed her but would that kind family-oriented bobby ann really leave her children like that yeah yeah side note the other jane doe from philadelphia that i mentioned Mm -hmm. with all the similarities That victim was finally identified as well in 2005. Wow. After the case was aired on a TV program, someone came forward with her story. The girl's name was Candace Clothier, a 16-year-old that had been heading to meet up with her boyfriend and had been given a ride by two acquaintances. They had drugged her without her consent. She had overdosed, and the men dumped her body off the interstate. Mm -hmm. Similar, but not Not related related to Tent Girl. Right. And the story of Todd does not end here. Oh. This guy, man, what a driven guy. He continued in giving names to the nameless. He created the Doe Network in 1999, a group of volunteers that helped investigators with cold cases on missing and unidentified people. Then he created EDAN, Everyone Deserves a Name, where forensic artists volunteered and created sketches and clay reconstructions of unidentified remains to help law enforcement. Then he helped the Department of Justice develop the National Missing and Unidentified Persons System. Wow. Namas.gov. In time, he was hired by the Department of Justice, fulfilling his true passion in work, managing missing persons cases. He works out of his home with his wife, Lori, living on the same property in which he was born. Oh, the end. <laughs> oh, kudos to this guy. I know. He just followed his 
heart. I thought it was an incredible story. That's why I had to include it. Wow. Very cool. Very sad. But you can't even bring the guy to justice because he's He's dead. He's dead. And yeah, it'll always be open because he's dead unless they find that it was somebody else. You know, did those truckers see Bobby or was that just another girl Mm -hmm. walking with another guy? Because back in the 70s, there were a lot of hitchhikers. That was the way to go cross country. I will just never, unfortunately, will never know. Yeah. Wow. Good story. But he gave a name to the nameless. Yeah. Yeah. Gave some closure to the family. Mm hmm. Oof. The end. All right, Mom. Time for some paranormal, please. My haunting in Kentucky is very well known in paranormal circles. In fact, Ghost Adventures visited the site (laughs) not once, but twice. So I found it interesting that there are many that also refute the claims that this site is haunted. Ooh, now I'm very intrigued. I am, of course, talking about Bobby Mackey's music world. Both of our stories are about a Bobby. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. First, we have Bob Vance, then we have Bobby, the victim, and now we have Bobby Mackey's. <laughs> oh, this is a nightclub and honky tonk located in Wilder, Kentucky. Please don't say that again. Honky tonk. Oh, no. The club is owned by country singer Bobby Mackey, who says that he has never witnessed anything supernatural in the club. But he has gotten used to all the paranormal investigations that go on in the club. (laughs) Yeah, because he's probably making some good money on them. Mackey opened the club in 1978, his passion for music being the driving force. But it wasn't long after obtaining the property that he learned of all the paranormal stories associated with his new purchase. At first, I guess because he didn't have a real interest in paranormal, he was afraid that his place of business which was haunted, would run people off. (laughs) He learned soon enough that actually the opposite was true. This is why we have listeners. (laughs) And now the club's slogan is, come for the ghost, stay for the music. There you go. (laughs) Being a businessman, he turned his ghosts into a moneymaker also. Not only is music, food, and alcohol served at the club, but you can also sign up for a haunted tour. There's a two-hour tour of the entire establishment for $35. You have to sign up in advance and payment is in cash. But make sure to look at the Bobby Mackey calendar beforehand because I did look at it and most of the tours were already full. Oh, I'm sure this place is You can also sign up for a five-hour paranormal investigation in which you are allowed to roam the building with no guide. Ooh. This is open to paranormal investigation teams up to 12 people for $600 cash. Those are all just side notes. We'll save that for when we're on that side of the country. <laughs> That'll be called something else. That's not part of the Bloody Mary tour. Not the Bloody we'll, Mary. We will put I that. bet you could get Bloody Marys there. Though. I'm sure we could. Maybe Bloody Mary tour part two. <laughs> so why is Bobby Mackey's considered the, quote, most haunted nightclub in America? Let's start with a little history, shall we? Bobby Mackey sits on what used to be a slaughterhouse in the mid-1800s. A few resources said that according to rumor, the owner of the slaughterhouse would, for a price, dispose of anything or any body. (laughs) 
<laughs> After the slaughterhouse closed, it sat abandoned, and in the late 1800s, again, according to rumor, the basement was used for satanic rituals. Of course. In the 1930s, the building was bought by Buck Brady, who turned it into a nightclub, the Primrose Club. This club was taken over by I'm the... sorry, sh- but who looked at a slaughterhouse and goes, that's going to be the next nightclub? <laughs> Well, obviously, Buck Brady. <laughs> he must have been on it because uh, it's, it's, obviously worked it's out. never changed. <laughs> so, so he established the Primrose. And unfortunately, the club was taken over by the Chicago mob. And Brady was supposedly so upset about losing the building that he committed suicide in the club. Hmm. The mob changed the name of the club to the Latin Quarter. Under these owners, the club became a gathering spot for gambling and prostitution. The Latin Quarter was shut down in the 1950s, and in its place came the Hard Rock Cafe. What? No. The chain that we all know. I was like, hold on. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) Violence was the name of the game at the Hard Rock. Throughout the 1970s, there were many shootings and stabbings until it was finally shut down by authorities. How did they get away with naming it the Hard Rock? It was probably before Before the hard hard rock. Mm -hmm. This was the hard rock before the hard rock. Then in 1978, Bobby Mackey's music world came to be. After some of this very violent history, I guess it makes sense that there would be some ghosts or residual energy hanging out. Right. One of these ghosts is a woman named Johanna. I've been singing this song in my head this entire time. Good, you're going to listen to it. Johanna, Johanna. Well, I'm going to play it. We don't have to listen to you. <laughs> you weren't warning them that I was going <laughs> to sing it for them. She was the daughter of a mob boss who managed the club when its name was the Latin Quarter. The story goes that Johanna was in a relationship with a singer who performed at the club. Her father did not condone the relationship. According to some sources that I read, he was an extremely jealous man and very possessive over his daughter. And the young couple kept their relationship a secret. He found out about it and the young man mysteriously disappeared. Johanna committed suicide. Her spirit is said to still linger at the club, wandering around, perhaps looking for her lost love. Customers have also reported smelling a rose-scented perfume, which was the perfume that she supposedly always wore. And the grumpy old man wore in the clink scales (laughs) in. Remember, he wore rose perfume, too. (laughs) Well, we don't know if he wore it, but... (laughs) Just saying. Listeners who haven't listened to last week's, that's what she's referring to. No need to listen. There's an old man that wears rose perfume. The end. <laughs> you can still listen no, to it. I was joking. <laughs> okay, so Bobby Mackey must have been very taken with the story because he wrote a song about Johanna. Now, is the story true or is this just like legend? I couldn't find <laughs> information on that but i wanted to i wanted to you can we play it on the podcast mom probably not probably not i don't i'm not going to wow (laughs) she so go on youtube so do you want me to sing no 
So go on YouTube and listen to Bobby Mackey sing Johanna. Or you can just get on the Ghost Adventures episode because they play it over and over and over. <laughs> and that's how I know it. But I really listen to the words. I don't know. No, I yes, I know. And the words totally tell the story of... They do. ...of this, what I just, you know, they tell the story of what I just said. <laughs> but it's it's cool to listen <laughs> to the song. Knowing that's where the song comes from. Yes. Okay. Another spirit who may be at the club is the ghost of Pearl Bryan. Her story is also very tragic. And this story for sure is true. This one I did look into. Okay. She was 22 at the time of her murder. She was found in a field in the town of Fort Thomas. And I looked that up and it was about five miles north of Wilder. She was found in February. I always do this. It was not 1986. <laughs> oh, my God. I always do this. So she's found in February. Of in February of 1886. She had been decapitated. Oh. And to this day, her head has never been found. When she was autopsied, she was, it was found that she was pregnant and had been drugged with a large amount of cocaine. But this was before DNA or fingerprinting, so there was no way to identify the headless body. That is until a shoe salesman, Louis Pock, helped in the investigation. (laughs) I just found this so incredibly interesting, and I know it's totally off topic right now, but it ties in later on. (laughs) So after the body was found, the news spread, and people rushed to the murder site as we have heard in previous stories. As we all do, apparently. To grab souvenirs. Oh. You know, like branches that were lying around the body and even jars of blood-soaked soil. Why? 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 I don't know. When Lewis heard about the murder, he waited until the body arrived at the funeral home, then casually strolled over. And Lewis is a shoe salesman. Yep. He personally knew several of the police guarding the building, and so he was allowed in. Looking at the body, he noticed, quote, The head had been severed from the body by a remarkably smooth incision, end of quote. He also noticed how very small her shoes were. He found a code on the shoes, 22116245. This meant something to him. Doesn't mean anything to me. Something to him. The 22 meant that it was a size Three. What? <laughs> this is a woman's foot? Yes. And my sister criticizes you and I for having such little she feet. She had extremely small feet. That doesn't even make any sense. Have sizes changed? Oh, they must have since then. Because Mom, because we are seven. If your feet were any smaller, you'd be <laughs> I, walking on I, just a toe. I topple over. <laughs> that doesn't make any Sizes had to have changed. Maybe this is like European sizes. Uh, no, because those are like 38, 36. Okay. I- <laughs> 11 was the form used to shape the foot. She has or, no foot. Oh, she has just a toe. <laughs> the form used to shape the shoe. Oh, okay. <laughs> and the last number was the manufacturer's stock number. By tracking this information down, police were able to identify the body as Pearl Bryan. And that led to her boyfriend. Yeah, because she's the woman with the smallest feet. (laughs) Scott Jackson and his friend Alonzo Walling. Both were charged with her murder and hung. Wow, good thing the shoe salesman was nosy. I I know. He was like right on top of this. Wow. So in 2008, season one, episode one, 
when the Ghost Adventures crew first visited Their Bobby very Mackey's. first episode is Ghost Adventures. They claimed to have contacted the spirit of Jackson on an ovulus and heard him confess to the crime. Mm. Mm. Poor Pearl. With her pearl-sized feet. Now that was a true story. Now, even though the spirits of these two women have been reportedly seen by many customers, they are not mean spirits. But there are a few spirits at the club that are mm, mean-tempered. I'll just put it that way. Above the bar, there's a not sign. nice. <laughs> Above the bar, there's a sign which states that the bar is not responsible for any damage caused by, quote, otherworldly spirits that fill the establishment. They show that in the opening of Ghost Adventures. This sign was hung because a customer tried to sue Mackie because he claimed that he was attacked in the bathroom by a ghost wearing a cowboy hat. How drunk was this guy? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like those girls that fell down the steps i was just thinking about poor sips (laughs) being blamed but they didn't try to sue the inn no the darkest place in the building is the basement where the slaughterhouse drain was located that's disgusting here there is an actual hole into the ground zach of course called it a portal to hell oh boy there have been reports of people being pushed pulled and scratched while down in this area They've been pushed down the hole? No, they're just like... Oh my gosh, can you imagine? Pushed. No, not pushed down the hole. On the Ghost Adventure episode, Zach felt a burning on his back. And when Nick and Aaron looked at his back, there were three scratches going down his back. And I mean, you know, sometimes they're like little piddly little scratches that... That like Aiden freaks out about? Yeah. Yeah. No, these were deep scratches on his back that went all the way down his back. They were... They weren't just like an excuse for him to take off his shirt. And show his muscles. His muscles. <laughs> Maybe it was, but uh, they were they were really deep. It was crazy. There are also reports of people seeing a figure with glowing eyes in the basement. Ooh. Very evil. Very dark. Ew. According to Zach on the episode, he says that there are 29 sworn affidavits signed by reliable sources such as policemen and clergymen stating their paranormal experiences at the club. And most, if not all, were bad. On season four, episode three of Ghost Adventures, the crew returns to Bobby Mackey's in 2009. Wasn't it for a Halloween episode? Mm, I'm not sure about that. Pretty sure they went there for a Halloween episode. Because it was like one of their most haunted places. Now, this is after they were all supposedly followed home after their first investigation at Bobby Mackey's. Right. Nick recounts that right after the investigation, he was sleeping and was awoken by pots and pans banging. Kitchen drawers and cabinets opening and closing, and the kitchen faucet being turned on full blast. When he went into the kitchen, there was no one there. And this is why he left Ghost Adventures. No, he went back for the second I'm kidding. Zach recounts that a woman he was dating at the time was at his house, and the rosary she was wearing around her neck. I don't know why she was doing that. Why did you wear a rosary around your neck? It's not jewelry, but anyway, this personal opinion. It was yanked off. They found the rosary. Yeah, because it's sacrificial. (laughs) They found the rosary on the bed in the guest room, of which that door had been closed all night. Mm. The rosary is sacrificial? To wear it around your neck. Sacrificial. Is that a word even? (laughs) You sacrifice it. (laughs) Isn't it called sacrificial? I can't think of the word name. It's not that. Sacrilegious. (laughs) Right? Yes. Okay. Sacrificial. <laughs> Sac- 
sacrifice that rosary. Oh no. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> okay. Aaron actually thinks that the investigation, he said, was about 80% the reason he and his wife at the time divorced. Got divorced. Mm-hmm. That's right. They both shared the same nightmares, and when he was on the road, she would continue to have the nightmares. From what I understood about the whole thing, the couple decided to break off their marriage for the nightmares to finally end. And he said something about, we're, we're still best friends. We're still really good friends. We just couldn't deal with this Hmm. whatever is in the building is able to hack if you will into your personal life into the emotional core and then mimic a voice from your past or a loved one's voice from the present the exorcist that zach interviewed said quote demonic entities are patient you may say come get me now but they work on their own time. They will come, but when they want to. Yeah, because they're demons. They're intelligent. Maybe, as some people state, Bobby Mackey's is not haunted. But according to the research that I looked into... It's from everything I have ever heard from anybody, even paranormal investigator friends, it's haunted. I sure want to visit the place and see for myself because it does sound haunted to me. But I have to add that if we do visit the club which I would do with you and only you. I don't know if I would go. It sounds too dark for me. Well, I don't like those really, really dark places. I'm going to be carrying a crucifix, a rosary, holy water, <laughs> and whatever other spiritual things I can possibly carry to protect me. We're going to so. run in real fast, just covered in rosary beads, <laughs> ask for a Bloody Mary, take a drink, and run out. <laughs> yeah, this place. Dark well, places like that scare me. I think unless you go in the basement, I think the basement is where the bad stuff, the bad juju happens. Hmm. Is that where Pee Wee's bike is? There's no basement in the Alamo. (laughs) (laughs) I just introduced the boys to that movie. Anyway, go on. Oh my gosh, Michael. All three of them, my husband included, (laughs) I introduced him to it too. Yeah, Michael loved that movie when he was little. We watched it. I don't know how many times. My boys loved it. <laughs> anyway, they just had to. Oh, yeah, I think this might. I mean, I do want to go. I would be very curious. To We're go. not going in the basement. Right. I'd be very curious to go. It's very haunted. I just want to see what I would sense in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I know you've talked about Bobby Mackey's. Yeah. And so I, I you know, I thought, well. I'm just going to look when into Alex this because I, I didn't know anything about it. So When Alex and I lived in Charlotte and we drove up here to Kansas City to visit with you mm-hmm. one summer when we lived out there, we almost totally rerouted our trip. So we drive to Bobby Mackey's. It only added like an hour or something to our drive. Mm-hmm. We were very, very close to doing so, but we didn't. <laughs> good story. <The> end. <laughs> Started with a good story, ending with a poor one. <laughs> No, I didn't know about all the history, and and I didn't know anything about it, actually. So I found it very interesting to look into. Johanna, Johanna. Yeah, go listen to it. It'll do a lot better than that. (laughs) Bobby Mackey sings a lot better. (laughs) Well, we will put the link to that and all of our resources on our website, killerhangoverpodcast.com. We have been asked by a bunch of you how you guys can support our podcast and it's simple just go and leave us 
if you like us, a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts, a rating, a nice review, and you can also join our Patreon. Right. The reviews, I mean, I didn't know this before, but the reviews really push us up in categories so that if people Google... The more ratings and reviews we get, the higher up the we higher go. we are that if somebody's searching for a true crime podcast or a paranormal podcast or just even searching for they want to listen to Bobby Mackey stuff about Bobby Mackey podcast. We'd pop up. We'd be right there on the top. <laughs> and then they'd hear me sing and they'd be like, that was not Bobby wow. Mackey. <laughs> we took a wrong turn somewhere, Mabel. <laughs> so, yes, you can. So that would really help us out. We really appreciate it. If you've been to Bobby Mackey's or have a true crime that you recommend for us or a place that you'd like us to cover for paranormal, you can email us those recommendations to killerhangoverpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can message us on our, any of our social media. We have Facebook and Instagram. Oh my gosh, yes. If you've been to Bobby Mackey's and had an experience, let me know. I want to know. She wants to know. <laughs> Next week. I have the true crime, and I believe it's going to be from Louisiana. Louisiana. It, I think it is, because you told me that's <laughs> who I was researching next. I hope that's <laughs> I hope that's right. Thank you guys for listening. Have a great rest of your week. This is a good one, Mom. Yes, it was. It was all the way around good. Cheers, Mama. Cheers. I love you, kid. 